This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Greetings. This is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. I'd like to welcome you all today to the podcast, which will feature a discussion on lymphangiolyomyomatosis, or LAM. We're fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Laura Themster, who is the lead author of a summary for clinicians on the diagnosis and management of lymphangiolyomyomatosis, which was recently published in the Annals. The summary is actually a follow-up to the comprehensive official ATS and Japanese Respiratory Society clinical practice guidelines for LAM that were published in the Blue Journal in 2016 by Frank McCormick and his colleagues. Dr. Feemster is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle. She's also an investigator in the Veterans Administration Center of Innovation for veteran-centered and value-driven care. So welcome, Laura, and thank you very much for taking the time to participate uh, in this podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I chose this publication and this topic for today because although LAM is an uncommonly encountered clinical entity, as you know, it is a very unique and interesting cystic lung disease and one where the past decade has brought significant advances in our understanding of its pathogenesis. And importantly, there have also been some significant advances in diagnostic and therapeutic options, which obviously we'll be discussing more um, over the next several minutes. So to start us off, I thought it would be helpful, uh, Dr. Feemster, if you can summarize some of the salient features of LAM, starting off with epidemiology, clinical presentation, and maybe talk about some of the extra pulmonary uh, organ involvement uh, that we see in this entity. Sure, uh, I'd be happy to. So LAM is a rare neoplastic disease that affects almost exclusively women with a prevalence of about five per million. And it's characterized by, as you said, a progressive cystic lung destruction that is evident on high-res CT of the chest as diffuse thin-walled round cysts, chylus pleural effusions and or ascites from disruption of lymphatics and abdominal perivascular epithelioid tumors known as renal angiomyolipomas and lymphangiolyomyomas. It's caused by mutations in a tuberous sclerosis genes that results in uncontrolled growth of cells from an unknown source but that have characteristics of smooth muscle cells. And these appear benign histologically, but they're found circulating in blood, lymphatics, and infiltrating the lung. Clinically, patients present with progressive dyspnea exertion, recurrent pneumothoraces, and sometimes hemoptysis. Usually occurs at an average age of about 35 for women, and they may be symptomatic for years before their diagnosis. The most common complaints are dyspnea on exertion, as I said, and cough, chest pain. Two-thirds will develop pneumothoraces at some point in their illness, with nearly three-quarters of those having recurrence, and about a third will develop chylothorax. LAM can occur sporadically or in patients with a disease known as tuberous sclerosis complex, which is an inherited disorder that's characterized by seizures, cognitive impairment, and tumors in multiple organs. 
So, Dr. Fiebscher, what are, the, what are the typical pulmonary function or physiologic abnormalities that you see in these patients? Yeah, so you often see uh, obstructive uh, lung disease, and they'll have declines in their FEV1 over time. Okay. So, you know, it's interesting. When I was doing my training, um, when you commented on, uh, on this presentation almost exclusively in women, in, in my training it was exclusively in women. And so it's interesting that, that we've actually seen reports of this disease in men. And can you comment on, on some of the issues regarding this presentation in men? Does it present the same way with the same kind of symptoms that it does classically in women? And any, any issues uh, about changes or differences in natural history? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, as you said, very rare. In fact, case reportable for it to occur in men, but it does, in fact, occur. And the guidelines themselves reference a case report um, that was published in the Blue Journal back in 2000. And men do present um, with typical symptoms, um, just like women. Um, and it's just about being alert. Uh, the particular case report that was in the Blue Journal was a 32-year-old man, so around the same age, who had symptoms of tuberous sclerosis, uh, complex with seizure, cognitive impairments, and had had a nephrectomy in the past for a benign mass. And then it was only when he came in with his pulmonary symptoms of dyspnea and hemoptysis, um, which eventually led to diagnosis and a surgical lung biopsy consistent with LAM. So it, it, it seems that we should at least think about LAM, even in men who present with, with cystic lung disease of, of uncertain etiology. And it's been, again, uh, certainly a learning experience for me to uh, to know that we should expand the differential diagnosis uh, in men as well. Um, so can you comment on, on the natural history of LAM and its ultimate prognosis? Yeah, so over time, lung function in patients with LAM, their lung function declines at rates that are two to four times that expected for their age. And within 10 years, most patients will suffer from severe shortness of breath, recurrent pneumothoraces, as I referenced earlier, and eventually require supplemental oxygen. Lung transplant is an eventual option for treatment in appropriate candidates, um, although the disease has been known to recur in transplanted lungs. Thank you. So let's move on to actually getting to the, to the summary um, and the clinical practice guidelines specifically. So how did the, the guideline and the subsequent summary uh, come to be? How was it developed and, and where does it sit in terms of the literature uh, that's accumulated uh, about LAM over the, next, over the last several years? Right. So as you said earlier, the guideline itself was published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care in September of 2016. And the purpose of this guideline, which was a collaboration between the American Thoracic Society and the Japanese Respiratory Society, was to provide recommendations for the diagnosis and treatment of LAM that complements the earlier 2010 European Respiratory Society LAM guidelines. And the current guideline goal was to incorporate more e recent evidence that has emerged uh, over that time regarding the use of diagnostic testing with vascular endothelial growth factor D that we'll talk about, as well as the therapeutic potential of several uh, medications, including serolimus, doxycycline, and hormonal manipulation. The uh, panel of expert experts for the guideline, which was chaired by Dr. Francis McCormick and Dr. Joel Moss, who are also authors on the clinician summary, uh, had several face-to-face -face meetings and conference calls over the course of several years, working to identify clinically important questions that they eventually narrowed down to the four that we'll discuss today. The guideline panel used the GRADE approach, which is the grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation, to perform systematic evidence 
synthesis, synthesis and rated the quality of the evidence. The interdisciplinary panel then used discussion and consensus to formulate either strong or conditional recommendations uh, based upon the quality of the evidence that are either in favor of or against specific interventions. The clinician summary that we're talking about today that I co-authored and that was published in the Annals of ATS in July of 2017 is meant to provide a concise review of those guidelines for practicing clinicians as part of a larger effort to disseminate ATS guidelines to members of the society as well as other healthcare providers. Great, and we'll get into other ways that a tool like this can be made available to clinicians, but let's get back um, to the summary itself. So uh, it dealt with the diagnosis and treatment. So we'll start off with the diagnosis and, and the summary really focused on vascular endothelial growth hormone D or, or VEGFD. So, Dr. Femster, can you just tell us what that is and, and why uh, it's elevated uh, in LAM? Yeah, it's a lymphangiogenic growth factor that's expressed by the LAM cells that I was talking about earlier, those cells that have the smooth muscle characteristics. And the growth factor likely enables access to the lymphatic channels and then the spread of the cells throughout the body to all those uh, locations we discussed. It's elevated in about 70% of patients with LAM, and the levels really appear, appear to vary with disease manifestations. Um, we'll talk a little bit, I think, in a bit about its potential as a predictive biomarker. So what's, uh, what level uh, has the highest sensitivity and specificity uh, in the diagnosis of LAM? Yeah, so the... A priori, the guideline panel really wanted to make sure that they determined a level that had a sensitivity of at least 70% and a specificity of greater than 90%, and the cutoff that the literature supported for that is 800 PGs per milliliter. So, you know, the typical approach to these patients, obviously, when they present is obviously the, to look at the radiographic manifestations and then look for other extrapulmonary manifestations, including the renal tumors. Uh, that you described. So is, is uh, measurement of, VG, uh, of VEGFD the next step? Yeah, so a clinical diagnosis of LAM can be made if you have those characteristics, cystic changes in the lung, plus at least one of the other following things we talked about, either a diagnosis of tuberous sclerosis, a renal tumor, angiomyolipoma, the lymph angiolyomyomas, or a chylus effusion. But in patients who have the characteristic cystic lung disease on high-res CT, but lack those other clinical features, the guidelines now recommend that the vascular endothelial growth factor D testing proceed prior to going to lung biopsy. And if you have a positive test, and this is the important piece about this, if you have a positive test that's above the cutoff of 800, that obviates the need for a lung biopsy. But if the test is negative, it does not exclude the diagnosis of LAM. And so for those patients, they do need to go on to have a surgical lung biopsy. Um, so can one use VEGFD levels to follow the disease? So what happens to VEGF levels, VEGFD levels during treatment, some of the treatment options that we're going to talk about? Um, what, are, what happens during treatment? What happens if people stop treatment? And can you use that? to follow disease activity and disease progression. Is there any utility to that assay? 
Yeah, so the guidelines themselves don't uh, make a specific recommendation as to whether or not to use it, but they do discuss uh, the biomarker, and it was studied in the MILES trial, which we'll talk about in a bit, which was a uh, randomized controlled trial of serolimus versus placebo. And what they found is that levels of uh, the biomarker were similar between treatment and control groups at baseline, but with treatment, it declined over the course of the year. And when you stop treatment, they go back up. So there is suggestion that it could potentially be used to follow treatment. So, so one practical question. So if, uh, if a practicing clinician sees a patient that he or she suspects LAM as an etiology, um, is this essay readily available? Is it a send-out test uh, for most of our labs? So how does one go about uh, getting the test run and, and reported. Right. So um, I think it's going to uh, differ by individual institutions, but uh, one resource to help if it's not available at a clinician's institute, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, is there is um, help from the LAM Foundation, which uh, we is the partner for ATS uh, at the roundtable, the, the, and the LAM Foundation has um, resources for both healthcare providers and patients. And so if there's any difficulty um, there, they also name specialty centers throughout the country uh, that where they treat LAM patients. And so that would be a resource to look for if you're not readily, easily able to get the test at your institution. All right, so let's move on to the, to the uh, I think, a very exciting part of the summary, uh, and that is some of the treatment options. So you, you, you discussed and summarized uh, three treatment modalities, uh, serolimus, doxycycline, and hormonal therapy. So uh, I'd like you to summarize the data on these three modalities with a, obviously a focus on uh, serolimus and the trial. So let's start with serolimus and then we'll move on to the other entities uh, as well. Right. So I think it's helpful to think just a little bit about why these specific modalities were investigated. And so when it comes to serolimus, you know, we talked about there's these mutations in the tuberous sclerosis genes, and those mutations really lead to the disruption of cell development, motility, and survival um, through a pathway that's known as the mTOR signaling pathway. That's the mechanistic target of rapamycin signaling pathway. And so serolimus inhibits that activation of that pathway and restores homeostasis in cells that have TSE deficiency. And so the randomized control trial that I touched on briefly earlier is called the MILES trial, which was the multi-center international LAM efficacy of serolimus trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011. And it was a double-blind randomized control trial of 89 patients with LAM who had a decline in their, who had an FEV1 that was less than 70% of predicted. And the study looked at serolimus versus placebo for one year, followed by one year of observation after drug withdrawal. And what they found was that serolimus reduced the lung function decline, uh, both FEV1 and FVC, in patients who received treatment when compared to control, as well as improved quality of life and improved functional performance. Uh, the effects, unfortunately, lasted only as long as therapy was continued. So in the observation year after withdrawal of the medication, uh, the decline in lung function was similar to placebo in the previously treated patients. So uh, that led to the recommendation in the guideline uh, that we summarized in the clinical summary that for patients with abnormal lung function, 
with an FEV1 less than 70% of predicted, uh, recommendation is a strong recommendation for treatment with serolimus. So before we get into some, I have some specific questions that I want to ask about serolimus, but, but maybe it would be helpful if you talk about some of the uh, potential and associated adverse effects from serolimus. Mm-hmm. Sure. Generally, the drug was very well treated, well tolerated, excuse me. The side effects did tend to be common, but tended to be mild in nature. So um, mucositis, diarrhea, rash, nausea, lower extremity edema, and elevated cholesterol were all mentioned as the mild side effects that occurred. Um, there are more major side effects um, that have been associated with the medication, such as the development of ovarian cysts, dysmenorrhea, elevated LFTs, drug-induced pneumonitis, and proteinuria, as well as a, a susceptibility to infection. But um, there was no difference in major side effects um, in the MILES trial uh, when compared to between the two groups. So, you know, the recommendations are that patients with, you know, with reduced uh, lung function uh, should certainly be considered for serolimus therapy. But given the fact that it, it, it really changes the slope of change of lung function. Um, should serolimus be extended to those who present early on who may have preserved lung function? Yeah, so the timing of the initiation of therapy, the guideline uh, authors were very careful to point out that, you know, you really have to balance this need for continuous treatment uh, to benefit in that you have to continue the medication in order to continue to um, have its effects, and if you stop it, then you no longer have the benefit. Um, you have to balance that with the understudied long-term safety profile. And so uh, the timing of treatment really, they recommend looking at, if someone has normal lung function, then they need to be having a rapid decline in their lung function over time to really warrant treatment that early. And so they've picked the number that they uh, say is relatively arbitrary, but is an annual loss of 90 milliliters a year or greater in the FEV1. And the number was based upon the fact that that's at least a threefold greater drop than expected um, than the 30 milliliters per year you would expect in patients without the disease. Okay. So in the absence of, of data about optimal duration of, of serolimus therapy, how long um, would you consider treating? Should it be indefinite? Yeah, so the guidelines are also, they don't make a specific recommendation about that, but uh, when talking to individual patients about it, um, it is possible that indefinite treatment would be um, recommended. The things to take into account are the side effects that we discussed and the tolerability of the medication for that patient, um, the recognition, as we said, that continuous treatment is required for benefit, and that we know that studies of durability of effects and safety have gone out at least three and a half years at this point. More long-term data will be uh, available in the future. It is really pending registry data that the NIH is helping to collect. Um, one thing to take into account is that the decline in lung function is known to slow after menopause in women who have LAM. And so that is pointed out by the guideline authors as a reasonable time to consider uh, discussions about whether or not to continue the medication or have a trial of stopping it and following the lung function to see um, what happens with withdrawing the medication at that point. Great. Uh, one, of the, one of the specific... Um scenarios that was addressed uh, in the summary and obviously in the guideline uh, is in patients uh, with LAM who have chylus effusions. 
So can you comment on the, on the recommendations about the role of serolimus in those specific patients uh, prior to invasive management? Yeah, and so um, there is not as strong evidence for the benefit of serolimus in these patients in that there's been case series and small open-label trial only. The open-label trial was only of 12 patients, but those patients all showed resolution or significant improvement in their chylus effusions with treatment of serolimus, and so that uh, warranted a conditional recommendation. So the guideline authors suggest treatment of problematic chylus effusions with serolimus prior to using invasive management to treat those uh, fluid collections. Yeah, it, it turns out that um, my reading of this suggests that it may take a while for patients to respond to serolimus. So um, it doesn't sound like serolimus, at least uh, in its initial treatment, uh, really, I think, uh, would obviate the need for other things like you know, percutaneous drainage, et cetera. Is that, is that the correct take on the literature? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. You know, the patients may take several months to respond to the serolimus, and so it's a reasonable first step. I think it depends on how symptomatic they are at the time um, and how long they can wait before intervention. Um, discontinuation of the medication can also result in recurrence of the fluid accumulation, so it's uh, important to remember that as well. Thank you. Is there anything else? Uh, I think we've covered serolimus pretty well. Is there anything else uh, you'd like to add or that, uh, that we've missed in the discussion? No, I think, I think we covered the high points for it. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. So how about doxycycline? Yeah. So there is, again, I think it's helpful to th start with sort of a theoretical basis of why would you look at doxycycline in lamb? But the idea is that the cystic formation in lamb um, involves disruption of the extracellular matrix. And doxycycline has been shown to inhibit the matrix metalloproteinases that actually are responsible for that disruption of the matrix. So um, there was hope that, therefore, it would be beneficial in lamb to stop the cystic lung destruction. However, um, there was a small single-center randomized controlled trial, and it showed, unfortunately, no clinical benefit of doxycycline in any of the outcomes studied, which included FEV1 decline, diffusion capacity, shuttle walk distance, or quality of life um, over two years. And so as a result, uh, the... A conditional recommendation based on low quality evidence um, in these guidelines is that they suggest not using doxycycline, especially in light of serolimus and the evidence that supports its use. Okay. And then finally, hormonal therapy. And, and uh, again, for those of us more senior, uh, this was, you know, one of the treatments that was always discussed and, and oftentimes used in, in these young women uh, with LAMP. So, so what's the state of the art with hormonal therapy? Uh, at this point. Yeah, so the again, the idea that lamb is predominating in women and that lamb cells have actually been shown to express estrogen and progesterone um, made hormonal manipulation what um, was thought to be a promising therapy, especially that the additional facts that the disease worsens after exposure to estrogen-containing medications with pregnancy and then seems to stabilize, as we talked about earlier, with menopause. The evidence here, again, there's low quality evidence, but the small case series that have been performed looking at a wide variety of hormonal manipulation that includes oophorectomy, the serum estrogen response modulators like tamoxifen and gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists, and observational studies of patients on progesterone all have shown mixed results. So some have shown improvement, 
Others have shown actual worsening with taking the medications. Um, and so as, as a result, the recommendation in the guidelines is that they suggest not using hormonal therapy for treatment of lamb. It is important to note that if patients are on hormonal therapy for non-pulmonary reasons, um, then the recommendation is that they should discontinue products that contain estrogen, but the other medications like progesterone and progesterone-containing IUDs and uh, gonadotropin-releasing uh, hormone agonists are okay to continue. They shouldn't be used for treatment of lamb, but if they're using them, that's okay. Just make sure they're not on any estrogen-containing products. So uh, is, there, is there a role, you think, in hormonal therapy, for example, in patients who can't tolerate serolimus or who don't appear to respond as well as expected? Any, any, uh, any experience or any recommendation about that specific uh, clinical scenario? Yeah, I mean, they talk about the fact that there's obviously ongoing uh, studies into this all the time. And so the decision about trying to use therapies in patients that um, have not responded to serolimus or can't to uh, tolerate it, or even uh, combination therapy, if you haven't responded as well to serolimus as one would like, adding one of these medications really hasn't been studied enough yet to make recommendations one way or the other. Okay, thank you. And I guess, uh, you know, an important question is, um, again, understanding that this is a rare disease, but when patients are diagnosed or when patients are strongly suspected of having LAMP, should, should they be referred to specialized centers for their care? Yeah, so we talked about the fact that there are definitely specialized centers across the country that are identified uh, by the LAMP Foundation. Um, and uh, the guidelines themselves don't really address when is the right time to uh, refer patients to specialty centers like this, but other guidelines for other rare diseases definitely recommend that early in the course, both for the experience uh, dealing with the disease, but also the support mechanisms by being connected with other patients who are also sharing the disease, and then the opportunities to participate in registries and trials. Uh, the ERS guidelines do address referral for lung transplant among women with LAM or patients with LAM, and they talk about patients who have New York Heart Association functional class 3 or 4 um, symptoms at rest with hypoxemia and in severe impairment of functional capacity and lung function, obviously at that point should be referred consideration for lung transplant. So going to a specialty center prior to that um, seems reasonable. Terrific. And in this summary, as we mentioned, uh, is specifically geared toward the clinician. So what dissemination tools are available to access this, this guideline uh, and, and the summary? Um, any comment on, on where practicing clinicians can, can look at this in more detail? Yeah, definitely. So uh, I think that's a great to point out. Uh, the guideline is accessible through a variety of sources. So I'm talking about there the comprehensive guideline that we talk about in the clinician summary. And we said it was published in the Blue Journal in September of 2016, so it's obviously available through um, that website. But it's also available on the thoracic.org website for ATS. It's posted within the ATS official documents under interstitial lung diseases. Um, and then the LAM Foundation, as we said, was the public advisory roundtable partner for ATS, and they have a website, thelamfoundation.org, um, where they have a link to the guidelines as well. And there's also additional resources there for both patients and healthcare providers um, to get more information about LAM. Uh, 
In addition, obviously, we, we wrote the clinician summary that was published in the annals that we're discussing today, uh, really meant to summarize the salient clinical, clinical points in this podcast. And then there's additional LAM-related resources available through the ATS website that's uh, related to this guideline in the clinician summary, the clinical summary. Um, each year, the ATS has a Lung Disease Week that's a society-wide initiative recognizing rare lung disorders. Um, for which our PAR partnerships provide support. And so in March of 2017 is the last time they had a LAM week. And um, when you look on the thoracic.org website, you can find links to patient information there as well, as well as scientific articles for the healthcare providers that include uh, the literature that form the basis for these guidelines. And so there's some great links there. That's, that's great information. Thanks, Laura. Um, so I think we've covered a lot of ground, and I think we've covered uh, really the, the major uh, points um, that the summary has covered. So I thought uh, in closing, or just prior to closing, maybe you could just leave us with some take-home points uh, for clinicians. Sure. I, I think the first would be that when considering a diagnosis of LAM in patients presenting with the characteristic cystic lung changes on high-res CT but don't have other supportive clinical or extrapulmonary radiographic features, really you should proceed with the VEGFD testing. And if it's positive, then you get your diagnosis. And if not, then you all are going to need to go ahead and proceed to lung biopsy. Um, the second would be that in patients with a diagnosis of LAM and abnormal lung function and FEV1 less than 70% of predicted or who have declining lung function, then treatment with serolimus is recommended to reduce lung function decline, improve functional status and quality of life. And then lastly, do not routinely use doxycycline or hormonal therapies for treatment of LAM. But if a patient with LAM is on a hormonal therapy for non-pulmonary reasons, it's okay as long as you discontinue estrogen-containing products. I think that's great. And I, and I must say, you know, having looked at the summary uh, and read it a couple of times, I think uh, uh, it really is going to be very helpful. It's, it's succinct, um, and, but very to the point, and I think uh, will be very useful for, for clinicians in all clinical settings. Uh, moving forward. So uh, before we end, are, again, any other points or any other uh, topics you wanted to address or that we may have uh, neglected during our conversation? No, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and get the chance to talk about this uh, clinical summary that we wrote. Well, listen, I can't thank you enough, uh, Laura, for joining the podcast. And uh, it, was, it was terrific uh, and continued success uh, in your career. Uh, so for our audience, I hope uh, that you found today's discussion of LAM and the recently published summary for clinicians uh, as informative and helpful to your clinical practice uh, as I have. And until next time, this is uh, Dr. Greg Tino. Uh, I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And thank you so much for joining in. 